0: Hello, and welcome back to Hollywood at Home with the Creative Coalition, hosted by Robin Bronk. It's your moment to hear the unfiltered backstory of Hollywood's biggest stars. So sit back, relax, and listen in as today, we have the pleasure of welcoming esteemed actor Brian Darcy James to the hot seat. It's good to
1: see you. I've been wanting to talk to you and interview on this podcast for a while.
0: Oh, that's so nice. Thank you.
1: So thank you for being here. You're in New York now.
0: I'm back in New York. I'm right now currently in, uh, in Connecticut where we have a little house. So just kind of uh, holding up here for the time being. I'm in L.A.,
1: mo- more often in uh, Westchester.
0: Oh, okay. Yeah, and, uh, so we're not too far yeah. from, from where, where Westchester mm-hmm. is. Yeah. And you have a new Apple show. Apple. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm on Dear Edward, uh, yeah. which just premiered about two weeks ago, I think. Yeah, the timing is fuzzy. And yeah, so that just came out. Tell us about that well dear Edward is based on the book a novel with the same name and is about a young boy who survives a plane crash and he becomes a bit of a talisman for all the people who are mourning the loss of the people that perished in the plane crash and because um, Edward is the only one that that is still alive he like I said, it becomes kind of a magnet for all these people who are dealing with their own loss and and figuring out how to move forward with their lives. So it's about community. It's about pain. It's about uh, overcoming that through uh, reaching out. And uh, it's it's a beautiful, it's a beautiful story. So tell about the role you play in Dear Edward. I play Edward's father, Robin Tunney, uh, a great actor, is playing the mother and I play the father. And uh, Max Jenkins plays um, Edward's brother, our son. And so, in the pilot, you get a sense of um, Edward's family life, and they're they're scurrying off to Los Angeles because Robin's character is starting a uh, a job as a television writer. Uh, but anyway, I play I play the father.
1: You've done this what appears to be this seamless, successful run: small screen, big screen, Broadway. You started out. What was your dream?
0: well, it was it was really only I think, probably trying to get the chance to be on stage and do the thing that I had started off loving and learning, which was you know, studying theater
1: at Northwestern, right
0: at Northwestern, yeah, exactly. And uh, started working professionally in Chicago while I was in school. So my main you know kind of source of I guess my profession was was being on stage. And all the while, you know, when I got to New York, not very long after I finished school, you know, I was always trying to get into television and film, you know, and I had sporadic results of of doing doing that. But the mainstay was theater. And I, I would say, you know, with Spotlight, with that role in that movie doing so well and getting a lot of attention and winning the Academy Award, that was, it was a nice kind of way for casting directors, producers, et cetera, to kind of you know to have have a little bit of more of a handle on on uh, on who i was and it kind of changed it changed it allowed for more opportunity uh, let's put it that way for me to get in the room and be considered for such things so that's what was a nice a nice turn of events in terms of my career
1: actually now i'm remembering where we saw each other i think it was at the Independent spirit awards which spotlight also won. are you right or
0: yeah yeah, yeah, exactly. We did. Ahead, that James. was fun. Yeah, for sure. Heading back there, actually, in uh, in a week. For, I uh, know. Like I know. Theater. Well,
1: talk a little bit about what was your first Broadway experience?
0: The first show that I did or my experience as a spectator is there's two different things. How about Well, in in 85, I saw Dreamgirls on Broadway, and that was my first Broadway show, and I was struck by how small the theater was. Wait,
1: it was your first Broadway show because you grew up in Michigan,
0: right? I grew up in Michigan, yeah, and I was visiting, we were visiting my aunt and uncle who live in Connecticut, and uh, they took us to see the show, and and, uh, yeah, so I was in high school at that time, and um, so that was my first experience seeing a Broadway show. But my first experience being in a Broadway show was uh, doing Blood Brothers, uh, a musical by Willie Russell. And um, I came in and uh, replaced an actor uh, who was leaving to go do another Broadway play. And um, I, I had an awareness of this play because my sister was living in London prior to it being on Broadway. And she was... She's a huge theater um, nerd, and so she she had the cassette, and she knew the score, and she said, "Oh, you, you're gonna love this. You gotta gotta see this show if you're up here in London." Well, because of her kind of you know recon, I had a beat on the show, so I knew what it was. I knew the music, and so it was helpful going into it because I kind of knew what was expected and kind of the, the vibe of the of the show. But yeah, that was a thrill. It was a thrill to be in that show.
1: What was unexpected for you? It was your first time on Broadway? So you know you've been to Northwestern, you were in it, you were you were working already. What was most surprising about being on the
0: ground? Great- well I, I I remember thinking, you know, this is an answer to your question in a, in, a, in a weird way. Um I remember being very nervous about what it would mean to step out on stage and be you know in a Broadway show. And I remember having a lot of nerves about that and just that kind of unknown quality of what it would be like. And and as soon as I started, the, the show starts with a bit of a tableau of the ensemble singing a song together. And that is a bit of a kind of a introduction to the story itself. So I remember walking out on stage and thinking, oh, this is this is like any other show I've done before, with the exception that, you know, it has this title called It's a Broadway Show and the expectation of the people that are seeing it and where it is and all that. So I remember that that kind of reconciling those two things. It was an interesting moment because, you know, in my mind, there's this mythic quality of what, what it means to be, you know, on a Broadway stage, when in reality, the, the work is essentially the same as any other show that I'd done before. It's just the packaging was different. So that was something I do distinctly remember.
1: What was your first opening like? What was that feeling? Your first
0: opening night? Well, let's see. My first true opening night would have been because I because I wasn't there for the opening night of Blood Brothers since I had replaced um, Philip Lale, uh, the actor who was in it originally. No, no, I,
1: don't know, I don't care about you.
0: No, I know, I know. I'm just I, I'm just saying that as a pre- it was my first Broadway show, but my first real opening was doing Carousel Lincoln Center. So that was uh, that was the next Broadway show that I did, and that was really special because the Lincoln Center aspect of it the show itself was was really um you know was just a great it's just a great experience all around you know a lot of young people um kind of in this big ensemble of of the show and you know great actors like you know Audrey McDonald Tay Diggs Paula Newsom um I met my wife during that show so that was really special. There was a big party at uh, what is it? At that place on the Upper West Side. It's classic. Uh, no, and it's, out, oh, it's it's right in the park. In the park. The second you say it, it'll be like, duh. Why can't I think of it? Russian no, no, it's it's in the park. Tavern which, on the Green. Yes, Tavern on the Green. Thank you. So that was super super fun and exciting, and it was um it it was it was such a beautiful show and working with Nick Heitner. And Bob Crowley, the 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 set designer, they were just incredible people. So that 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 was definitely a, a memorable moment.
1: What about talk all about Shrek?
0: Were, what would you like to know?
1: You, well, you start in Shrek the musical. What did you find challenging about that?
0: Well, the makeup. Uh, that was by far the most challenging work experience I've ever had. Uh, the makeup was extraordinarily challenging in that it took an hour and a half to get into it. And about forty-five minutes to get out of it, and then during the show, there you know you're wearing this big fat suit, and so there were a lot of there were a lot of challenge physical challenges doing that show and getting through it, and, and but when the show was happening and when we were doing it, there, it was just gorgeous and lovely and and um, a super fun ride, and um, you know that score by Janine Tesori is just just great, but you know it took its toll on me mentally because it was just so hard. It was, it was like doing two shows at once because the work and the patience and the impatience that, that, you know, took place getting in and out of the makeup was, was really, really hard. And my daughter was in second grade at the time. I never really saw my family, you know, my wife and my, my daughter would come when they could in between shows because I couldn't get out of the makeup in between shows because there wouldn't be enough time to do anything other than get out and then back into the makeup. So I just had to stay in the big green head in between shows. And so I was kind of locked into, in in the Shrek jail for Wednesdays and Saturdays, you know, and my, my daughter would begrudgingly come along because, you know, my wife would try to come cheer me up and (laughs) bring me some soup. And my daughter was like, I gotta get out of here. This is, this is not fun. Plus my dad looks like, you know, a weirdo, but, um, you know, so I did that for a year. And, you know, the the challenge of it was was definitely the um, what was required in terms of making the, the character come to life.
1: Well, did you take pause when you were offered the role? Did you take, you know, because you, you're in such heavy prosthetic post- costume. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and did it make you take pause? And, and also, did you have to learn how to, how does one you're completely covered. How do you project? How do you, your facial expressions? It
0: well, was- the design was extraordinary in that it didn't really impede me in terms of my physicality. So there wasn't anything that I had to do to uh, stretch beyond the things that were, you know, laid on my face just with prosthetics and glue. So I will say that the design of it was, was extremely flexible and extremely helpful to me, you know, in terms of expression. And, you know, once I had it on, then it became just an experiment of trying to figure out, you know, how to use it properly and, you know, convey what I wanted to convey as the character. A lot of that work was done automatically just by virtue of how I looked. But, you know, I, it was definitely a learning process more so, I think, probably with the with the costume. The shoes had lifts in them to make me look, you know, taller. Like I said, the, the suit was was a big bulky suit. And you know overheating, and you know that was a huge issue at the beginning. And we tried all these things. I learned about these these vests that firemen would wear with ice packs in them to keep them from dehydrating, keep them cool during firefights. I wore those for a while. Problem with those is that they would get the ice would melt, and I would have an extra like you know five pounds on me, which at that point you know every pound was you know crucial and, and problematic. So um you know it was a it was a big science experiment really and it took a lot of patience and I got a lot of help from my dresser you know uh Jack Scott who's worked with me a few times and we it was it was a real being in the trenches kind of experience because there's a lot to figure out but in terms of the, actually doing the playing the character I would say that the design of the makeup and the, and the costume as well were nothing but informative in terms of you know what the character could be but not without his challenges, for sure.
1: One of your roles was um, in Dirty Rotten Scoundrels, which I actually saw you in, and is really, it's on my top list. Oh, uh, it's
0: rotten. so nice. So I, I love
1: that. that show. I loved you in it. Talk about Dirty Rotten Scoundrels, I mean, because that was basically a two-hander. Right?
0: Well, yeah, that was another replacement situation where Keith Carradine and I came in and replaced uh, the great John Lithgow and Norbert Leo Butts. And I had had a history with the show in its development stages. I, you know, I kind of dipped my toe in there for a bit. And so once again, I had a familiarity with it and was, you know, so excited to get the chance to play that part. What I loved about it was the unadulterated comedic aspect of it, which is something that I don't necessarily get to play a lot. So that, that was just a thrill. And Jack O'Brien, the director is one of my favorite people in this business and in this world and you know getting a chance to to work with him and 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 really create you know try to create for myself this (laughs) insane character in the places they would go that was um a real thrill i really enjoyed that very much and it's not many people had the chance to see it
1: did norbert did norbert leobots give you any as you're taking it over what would any words of wisdom from him
0: You know, there's, you know, there's not really, no, I've, I've been in this situation before, you know, coming into a show and also leaving a show, you know, there's definitely little, little things you can pass along that are technical things, but I was, you know, there was never any kind of big instruction, instruction booklet that he left. It was, uh, I definitely stole from him, uh, because what he did was so brilliant and uh, but, you know, there was nothing in particular that he said that I, that I remember there's no there was no kind of like, you know, uh, getting together to kind of map it out. Um, that's what the rehearsals are for. And that's what that's what Jack is there, the directors for to kind of figure out what my instincts were and Keith's instincts were and how they differed from, you know, what existed already. But uh, no, no, the only thing that that I took from Norbert were things that that, you know, I just stole from him. <laughs> Stealing is good. Yeah, it is. Uh,
1: uh, yeah. So, and you've done that, you know, like Hamilton when you played King George. Now, wait, did you, Jonathan Groff was before you or you were in between? I originated
0: two? the role of King George off Broadway at the public theater. And uh, and then Jonathan came and, and took over for me at the end of that run and then did it on Broadway. So I'm proud to say that I was there at the very beginning. And uh, yeah, that was that was a rocket ship ride. That was pretty great. Well, uh, yeah,
1: talk, talk about that rocket ship ride a little. What did you when you went into it? What did you think? Why did you Why did you do it?
0: Well, I did it because I was asked by by Lynn uh, and uh, and and Tommy Kale, the director. I had done a different couple of workshops along its way and its evolution, both the different stages of the game. I did one in a in a small room that had I think just the first act, in which King George appears. So that that had been written already, and so that was my first introduction to the material in a very base, not basic way, but a very limited way. Because again, it was only the first act. And then the second time I was with a full-on workshop, what was fully choreographed. And um, that was even more eye-opening because of just how extraordinary everyone knows that it is. At that point, it was just being revealed to us for the first time. So those two experiences were were kind of the beginnings of my Understanding of what the show was. And then, of course, the third aspect of this evolution is doing the show itself at the public. And, you know, when you have that combustible combination of a show and an audience, that's when it really became wildly clear that this was something that was just unlike anything she never ever experienced.
1: What about the show that you knew went, Emmanuel, and you knew his, his partner? But what about it crystallized it for you? Was it the score? Was it the, what, what made you see that it was going to?
0: I mean, why would you, Brian Darcy James, do this? Well, you know, th- it's an audacious thing to to say, you know, it's a, it's a rap musical about Alexander Hamilton, who I knew little about. Um, the combination of those two things on the face of it was was intriguing. And, you know, how is that going to be pulled off? Those are always really interesting things when, when just on the face of something it's, it seems kind of uh, unique and, and uh, uh, I'm always attracted to that. I knew Lynn's work you know, a little bit before doing this from in the heights and you knew he was uh, just an extraordinary artist and was incredibly compelling in terms of his writing and his acting. So, you know, all those things preceded it. But, you know, when you start seeing it breathing on stage, I I will say Andy Blankenbuehler's work as well, the way that it moved and the intricacy of it and the complexity of the movement and how the, the movement was telling the story as well. I do remember walking in to the workshop where the movement was being introduced and because King George kind of is kind of a plug and play role, you know, I got there late in the process and I saw I saw this thing in a way that i hadn't seen in its prior you know um iteration that that i think is when i realized this is something that was like a whole new language n- n- literally with the language of 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 the rap you know rhythm and the and the intricacy of the the rhymes and the this the kind of the speed at which it was being delivered and then of course the way it was moving it just seemed like and felt like something completely Different, and like I said, once we started doing it for people in in the audience in in the theater, and the audience was responding so positively, to put it lightly, that that just confirmed it, and just really made you realize, well, wow, this is this seems something it's like something else, you know. Uh, so I'm really, really grateful. I'm filled with gratitude that I had that experience of, of you know, being in a situation where no one really knows what's going to happen, but it's revealed to you in the moment that this is, you know, that you're breaking ground and you're part of something that is, that is historic.
1: Did you love singing your song as King George?
0: I loved it. I loved it. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a three chord. I love that song too, by the way. I just, yeah. Everyone does. It's such a catchy song and it's so clever and it's it's such a, uh, it's just a great, you know, kind of, british pop kind of uh you know tip of the hat to to that kind of style of writing yeah i mean like i said i i'm i i'm drawn to that i'm drawn to those kinds of songs in 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 my life you know i just love that i love the good three chord pop songs so to be asked to be the person to deliver that song which stands alone in its own style um there's a lot to love about about having that that responsibility and You know, being the one who's going to come and kind of turn turn that the the apple cart over and say, no, we're going to do this now and then have it be the king. So every every everybody has to look at you. Um, There's nothing wrong with that. I don't think any actor would disagree with that. But, yeah, the, the song is so, so sweet and catchy and just so good. It was from the very beginning. I was I was ravenous about getting the chance to sing it.
1: It was like, do you remember in college you would have that song for finals? You know, that all the, the dorms would be shit, you know, when people were listening, it was like finals week. That's that song though. If I were in college now, I'd be playing that song over <laughs> and over
0: again. Yeah, it's 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 interesting too how how the song has become, you know, so well known. Uh, you know, how and it's so easily digested. And uh, you can hear it once and you want uh, you know it. And uh, I think that's what, what's so great about about that particular song is that it allows the people that love the show to kind of have a handle on that, on, on a tune that, you know, that they can literally, you know, like you said, just like blast and play and, and have it kind of feel like their own song because they can sing it.
1: So was it hard for you to leave that role? Then you got a lead.
0: No. It was very difficult. It was a very... Uh, interesting uh, nexus of of opportunities at that time because i was uh going to do something rotten which is what i left hamilton to do but it was supposed to happen about a year and a half down the road we were going to do it out uh in seattle i believe at a date you know later in the calendar and then the out of town aspect of it was was uh, jettisoned and they were going to just do it on broadway so I worked on that show. I developed that show as well. And it was kind of a Sophie's choice at that point of, 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 you know, where, where am I going to go? And, you know, decided to do something rotten uh, for a lot of different reasons and had a very frank and uh, you know, honest conversation with uh, Oscar Eustace and Tommy and Lynn, you know, at the beginning saying, look, this is, this is what's happened right now. And this was right before rehearsals were starting. And, um, you know, it was uh, it was a moment where I was I had to say, look, I, I I'm going to do this, and I I didn't expect this to be you know happening now, but I would love to proceed with you know the off Broadway um, version of the show of Hamilton and and get it up on its feet, uh, but I understand if that's too problematic to have to worry about you know switching horses in midstream down the line and much to my delight and, uh, my luck, they, they were all, they all allowed me basically to, to kind of come in and, and, uh, you know, step into the pool as the first person. So, um, you know, there was a, there was a couple, couple of hours there where, you know, they were chatting, chatting about it. And I was waiting to find out if I could be in it. So, I'm so thankful that that uh, I got to do both things. You know, people say, oh, you didn't get to do it on Broadway and and you didn't get to do the whole thing. You weren't there as the original cast member. And I said, well, I was, but it was di- different. It was a different experience and I got to do it. So I have no regrets about the whole way it, you know, panned out. Was it easy? No, it wasn't easy because while it was happening, you know, you're in this show and you know paul McCartney's coming and then what what president is here tonight and you're thinking what why am i leaving this show this is the most extraordinary experience of my life but you know these these are the things i uh that sometimes happen and it was just a uh uh just a you know confluence of of really great opportunities and and uh, the rest is history but yeah it was uh, it was definitely i thought about it a lot and ha- there were a lot of repercussions and a lot of things to um to think about along the way. And I had just as much fun. Uh, well, not just as much fun. I probably would have had more fun being there for that rocket ship ride, but it was fun watching it, knowing, you know, knowing that I was had been inside it at one point and just, just seeing how that thing took off and, you know, it, it minted all of these incredible stars, you know, that, that everyone knows and loves right now. These great actors who were just kind of newly minted with that show.
1: And you have worked, you know, people, outstanding people have worked with you. And in fact, on this podcast, people have talked about their outstanding and great experiences working with you. You've worked with, also, you were um, opposite Kristen Chenoweth in The Apple Tree.
0: That's right.
1: Talk about that for a minute.
0: Well, let's see. That was um, that was a lot of fun. That was a roundabout uh, production, a roundabout theater production, and uh, a, a great score by Bach and Harnick. And um it's such a fun show because you, the first act is, you know, playing different parts and sorry, the first act is Adam and Eve. So there's one story in the first act and the second act is some vignette. So you get to play different characters. So it's a, it's a bit of a sketch show in a way, but you know, the main attraction was Kristen Chenoweth and I, I, I've known Kristen for a while.
1: And uh, Brian Darcy James.
0: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, of course, of course, but she, she's, you know, she's a singular talent for sure. And I'd known her prior to to actually working with her and I always wanted to work with her. And so it was, it was really nice because those two, those two roles, myself and her, you know, were always interlinked and, you know, constantly, constantly with each other throughout the show. Uh, that's the DNA of it. So I loved that experience. I really did. I think she's, um, she's a dear person and um, I loved every second I got to work with her.
1: What was your most unusual experience on a Broadway stage where you had to
0: think more quickly than usual, oh boy, that's a good question. well <laughs> I, I, I'm laughing because I don't know if this is the best answer, but it's the most recent answer and it, it, and it might be it might be the one answer. When you say think fast, all I can think about is getting. Stephen Sondheim's lyrics right. And, um, I was just in into the woods. And if you, if you go off road, you know, it's hard to get back because every single word is so pristinely placed and, um, you know, every conjunction and every preposition and every noun and every verb and everything is just so beautifully constructed that you can't just wing it. And there were moments definitely in the beginning of the run where, you know, I, i i I would have to just make something up because you know i i, I lost my way and in, in in um it well, in in this particular case was it takes two with Sarah Bareilles, who just had to look at me and just stare at me and wonder what the hell I was saying. But um, you know, those moments after the fact are fun and funny. But during them, it's the most frightening, awful situation, especially when you're singing Sondheim and you know that every single person in the audience is like, no, he didn't say, oh, it's, it, it's supposed to be this and not
1: that. And, you know, and Into oh, the and not is
0: such yeah. a
1: classic. Yeah. That you know, the audience does know the lyrics. That's you right. Have some real theater.
0: Not only do they know them, but they they have such reverence for them, which I think is an extraordinary testament to his work, obviously. So you, know, you want to get it right, not only just to convey the story, but also to kind of honor the kind of Rube Goldbergian <laughs> constructions that he's made that are just so amazing.
1: I love that because it, and my own, my little experience, my kids were in, into the woods. So I saw about 25, you know, young theater performances of it. But the it was so, yeah, you, the lyrics and them learning the lyrics. And that this is just my kids, but it was a, it was, it was a real lesson. Yes, the arts do teach you how to be disciplined, how to be yeah. strategic. How to, yeah, how to that's think true. On your feet. So talking about audiences, you performed in front of, president
0: and michelle obama what was that like that was uh it was a great honor what comes to mind uh, immediately is kind of in the same vein of of you know thinking fast but it was advice that the producer of of this show who had done a lot of these you know broadway performances in the east in the east room for the president he said he said to all of us he goes now listen here's one piece of advice i have to give to you and i think it's helpful I would advise you at the beginning of your song before you start singing to look down and to acknowledge that in the front row is the president of the United States and his wife sitting six feet from you. Because if you try to avoid that and you sing your song and you're in the middle of your song and you've forgotten that fact and you look down and you see that's the president of the United States and his wife sitting six feet from me, you're going to lose your way and you're going to freak out. So look at them understand the scenario and then proceed with your song i thought that was fantastic advice it's such it's just great it's just a great way of i don't know looking at the world and just kind of see what's in front of you and deal with what you have and then proceed accordingly so that's one thing that i remember
1: what what did you perform
0: i sang blue skies uh the Irvin berlin classic or you know that that's just just a great song yeah, and I, you know, met them both, and and uh, you know, I remember trying to crack a joke with the president at the end because you know I had to follow this this super phenomenally talented young like eight year old girl who stole the show. I can't remember what she's saying, but you know, I, I he was meeting her, and then he met me, and I said something like, "Well, I I had to, I did my best. I had to follow her," and he goes, "Well, you did all right. You did all right." <laughs> He was great. He was, he was, real. And was
1: It was actually in the White House.
0: Yeah, it was in the East Room. So um, which is the East Wing, rather, I think it's called the East Room or Wing. It's definitely part of the White House. And, you know, one of your waiting rooms was down in the map room, which is which is a level below and you're drinking Cokes there and they've got things water for you. And it's just it just it's really an extraordinary situation when that House that place becomes a a work environment for actors who are going to sing songs and and perform. It takes me back to that answer about Blood Brothers and you know the expectation of the institution, the 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 Broadway theater or the White House. You know the, these things are these are places that obviously are symbolic and and um, you know have tremendous meaning. And then when you're in there doing your job as an actor, the job stays the same. It's just that it's the it's the thing that surrounds you that is different and can trip you up if you think about it too much.
1: Talk about, because I could talk about this all day because I love your Broadway work and I, I love your other work too, Spotlight, which was such a, a, an ultimate movie of you know importance. And what attracted you to Spotlight? I mean, why do an independent
0: movie? Well, I'd be lying if I said that I was kind of, you know, going through all of the offers that I had and saying, I'm going to choose this one because. Actually, I
1: wrote it. Josh Singer.
0: Yeah, Josh wrote it. Uh, But, you know, I I did it because I I got an audition for it. And um, I knew Tom McCarthy. I knew his work from the station agent. And I also knew his work as an actor because I was hip to him because of my sister went to college with him at Boston College. So I knew Tom as as this actor who had become a, a a director so i knew who he was and i had a vague notion of of the story um and the script was so extraordinary so you know those that combination of things i and i think at that point um michael keaton and mark Rufflow were involved so you've got incredible people who are you know who are kind of you know at the forefront of it so this was just an opportunity for me to come in and maybe steal one of these parts and you know lucky for me that's what happened you know i, I remember feeling I, I remember feeling so excited to be working with all these people and getting that part because of the people and my reverence for the for the actors that were in it already and it it wasn't until because you never know when you're making a movie you just never know what it's going to look like at the end of the day how it's going to be cut together and you know if it's going to fly or not but there was something about doing it that after the intoxication wore off of, you know, doing a scene with Michael Keaton, you know, and then, and then just kind of getting past that and actually doing it and realizing really what the story was and how the story was written, how the story was being told. There was something so solid and so momentous about, about the doing of it. I remember feeling like this this really feels solid and it feels kind of indestructible in a way, but, you know, I had, I had no idea that it was going to be, you know, it's going to win the Oscar. I just would never dare to think that at all. But I also remember the woman who was the key uh, hair head, head of hair. She kept saying, this is something special. She was, she, she, she kept saying that. And I was like, okay, I've heard this before but she knew something about her, her intuition or what she was witnessing. She was saying it from the very beginning. So I'll I'll never forget that. So I don't know. I mean, there's so much to discuss about that, about that movie and that experience. One funny little thing was, is that Birdman came out when we were shooting it and uh, you know, that that's such an extraordinary film. And I can't tell you what it's like to go to the movies and see Michael Keaton Keaton as Birdman and then walk into work next day and do a scene with him and just thinking you know, like, how, how is this happening? You know, how, how, how lucky am I? I also remember half of the cast, just, just kind of razzing him, calling him Birdman. Hey, Birdman. <laughs> you know, it, it, it it's a funny world where all of a sudden, you know, the the mythic movie that you've just seen as being kind of, you know, people taking potshots at work, and you know, just because because you're just sitting around waiting for the next scene. So I don't know. It was it was a fun, lot of fun working with all those actors.
1: Talk about your role.
0: Well, I'm happy to say that Matt and I have have remained friends, and um, I recently went to um, where he teaches at uh, Northeastern University in Boston. He's a data journalist. And so it's in that, it's in that world, but he, uh, was always, you know, from the, from the jump, you know, I, I wanted to get to know him as, as clearly as I could and as well as I could. And just to get a sense of who he was, how he thought, what his opinions were, you know, to understand his perspective on the matter, but also understand kind of maybe see who he was and try to figure out how to get into his skin, so to speak, he made himself available. He was in New York. We had, we had a couple of uh, lunches in New York when he was there visiting. And there's something must be very strange when you're talking to somebody who's watching you so that they can play you in a movie. And I know that all of those journalists had been down this road before with another version of a story of the spotlight story that didn't pan out so great and they all kind of were rolling their eyes about it. So they, I think they all had their guard up a little bit in terms of not expecting too much, but again, even more remarkable because if you've had that experience, you you probably would be wary of having to do it again and putting yourself out there and being generous to help someone else try to do that. But they all were. I mean, I, I think I can speak for all of the actors who had to portray their doppelgangers. Every one of them was super helpful and super generous with their time and, you know, wanting to get it right just as much as we did. So Matt Carroll is a great guy, a lovely, a lovely person, uh, an incredible journalist, great teacher. And uh, he's a, he's a good friend.
1: And in spotlight, do you at all take pause and wondering, is there going to be backlash on this? Are we, you know, are we up against the church? Did that did you think about
0: that at all, or no? Or uh, we never discussed it. I, I think by the very nature of the of the the story itself, in terms of how how it unfolded in Boston, with the with the you know the archdiocese having you know such control there, and and that part of the story, um, I think inherently there was an understanding that that might play out on a larger scale, just in terms of uh, what the institution of the church might think and what what they may or may not do in order to kind of um, participate in this movie being released or squelching it or whatever, you know, there were, there, I think there was probably an inherent expectation that there might be, but as it, and from my perspective, you know, I didn't distribute it. I didn't have to produce it. So those are the folks would have way, way more uh, details about any kind of pushback they got from the church. But from my experience, it felt like the story a had already been told. And so it was undeniable Um, so there was really no sense or really no chance for anyone to come back and say, well, this, this isn't true. How dare you say this? It had been, it'd been exposed already. Now it's just being exposed in a different way. And as it turns out, it was being told in a very, the story was being told in a very, very, very compelling way so that it just, it it just gave a platform to this story to reach more people. And I, I do know that we were hopeful and I do know that the journalists from the spotlight, um, Team were hopeful that their work could be extended by virtue of this film, meaning that the same thing that happens at the end of the film when they kind of rip off the, the top of this thing and all of these people come forward and say, This happened to me as well. Maybe that will happen with this movie. And it did. So, you know, that that I think is a, a lasting legacy to great journalism, dogged journalism. Talented, diligent people who are who, who get into places that it's really hard to extricate the truth. And also filmmakers who did an extraordinary job of kind of telling that story and amplifying that that sound and that story.
1: Did you have anyone who approached you about their own personal experiences?
0: Yes. That? Yeah, there were it was inevitable that that would happen along the way, um, either in personal conversations or in question and answer Periods during you know sag screenings etc. Where people at different different stages of their trauma, either embracing it or coming to terms with it, there would be stories, personal stories that would would come forward. And it was I, I'm moved just thinking about it because it really is such a um, heinous thing that that occurred and still occurs, and the people, the victims of sexual abuse you know that is something that i can only imagine to be carried around is 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 um is something else and and their courage and their willingness to talk about the story with us and to others you know is is um is a courage that is incredibly inspiring
1: there's also a career courage for the actors i think when you are willing to take a risk because A lot of people won't like that you're bringing it up, that you're doing this, whether it was with this or um, I want to get into 13 reasons why. But before that, talk about uh, being nominated for the Oscar and sitting
0: when you were at the Oscars. Um, It was surreal. And, you know, there's there's one element to it where you think, oh, great, we're here. We're at the party. This is great. This is it. And then you realize, oh, well, we actually could win this thing you know because you know once you're there and you're it's it's inevitable to get swept i'll speak for myself you know you get swept up in it and it's just like this is this is really there's a shot here and uh, i remember morgan freeman was the uh, presenter of our award i remember him saying waiting for that moment when you know who who was going to win morgan Freeman said, spotlight now i was sitting in the back because josh singer gave me his his seats uh thank you josh and we just kind of catapulted myself over, you know, 26 people, and probably you know stepped on people's ankles and wrists and, and whatnot. But I, uh, I, I had mapped out a plan that in the event that this thing happened, I knew, <laughs> I knew which way to go to get there. I flew down the aisle. I'm surprised they let me up. But anyway, yeah. Then then there's that other moment of being on the stage, looking out and seeing all these luminaries. I do. I remember, I remember being there and seeing Steven Spielberg sitting, you know, you know, in the fourth row on the aisle and just thinking like, I, I am inside the, I'm inside the, uh, the rabbit hole here. It was really, it was really fun and, you know, beyond exciting. It was just, it was a stunning night.
1: It was, it was stunning. It was just a fantastic movie, an important film. And to be an arts lover and, and, and someone who believes that the arts can change the way we think, yeah, that was recognized.
0: Yeah, well. it's um, art doesn't always have to do that in terms of entertainment, in terms of movies, but certainly there there are a lot of artists who are dedicated to that that idea and and to that cause. And I agree. I mean, it is it is an important thing to recognize that and to say. If you tell a story well, it can be entertaining and it can also change the world.
1: And speaking of edgy pieces that you choose or that choose you, thirteen reasons why. When you first read the script, what did you think? And did you think about what it was going to unravel in the
0: zeitgeist? Um, to to your latter the latter part of your question, no, I I didn't, I didn't honestly, um, no what kind of impact the story was going to have. And I was um, embarrassingly uh, uneducated about the epidemic of teen suicide um, in this country and in the world. So I learned a lot really fast about the story that we were telling and just by doing it and kind of just the the workaday stuff that an actor does to prepare. But it wasn't until afterwards, until it became, you know, a show that a lot of people were watching and therefore a lot of people were discussing. And therefore, considering the topic, there were lots of things to discuss. There was an interesting moment for me as a parent and as an actor when the school that my daughter, the high school that my daughter went to at the time, sent an email out to the parents to say, there is this show called 13 Reasons Why, and it deals with teen suicide. And there's a lot to be discussed about this and it's, it's something that you know we shouldn't stumble into considering you know what the numbers are and 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 what the reality is of of so many um, young people who are suffering and i thought it was a really interesting moment for me to appreciate as a consumer you know what what it what it is that happens when we tell stories uh, and we watch movies and then also as a person who's creating the the story it was an interesting kind of moment for me. But as to why and the how, you know, I'll go right back to Spotlight. Tom McCarthy uh, was the executive producer and directed the pilot of it. And um, another person that was the showrunner of a a brilliant writer named Brian Yorkie, who I worked with on Next to Normal, the Broadway musical, they were a big reason, if not the only reason that I wanted to do it. I I loved them both so much. And um, we talked about it. And uh, so that wasn't it. Wasn't very hard for me to say yes to either of them, considering that both of them had kind of changed my life and these extraordinary things I got to do with them. Both, by the way, Spotlight and Next to Normal, tackling things that are really hard to discuss. In the case of Next to Normal, you're talking about you know mental illness and mental health and and bipolar. What does that mean? And all these all these things that are kind of whispered about, which I think in the time that the show has been produced has really opened up a dialogue and in terms of how we uh, discuss mental health and it's not as taboo. I, I, I would like to think that that show has next to normal, had a a little bit of a, a say in pushing that boundary and allowing for that space for more conversation to be had in a healthy way. But anyway, back to 13 reasons why I knew the sensibility of both Tom and Brian were coming from a place of care and concern and, and, uh, delicacy in terms of treating the matter properly and thoroughly. And so, yeah, I mean, that's, that's all, those are all the mechanics going into making the show. And then, then there's another, there's a whole nother thing when it's being received and being discussed in terms of its impact. So, I mean, it's an interesting thing to be a part of that conversation.
1: What about working with all these teenagers or young adults? I don't know how, how, what's the
0: Most of my stuff was with Catherine, who played who played the lead, and with Kate Walsh, who played the the mother, and my wife. I did get a chance to kind of participate with you know the the high school students. They're all so talented, just such talented people, and when you're surrounded by that, and, you, and you, especially with a younger uh, group of people who are um, honing their skill and are full of life and and full of exuberance and, and uh, just at a different point in their lives. So they just have a, an energy to them that is, um, that is undeniable. That is, that is um, infectious. And anytime it was with them all, there was such a, a, a big, big, just you know, kind of big burst of energy because they were all kind of in love with each other. And it was a great group of people. And, and uh, it kind of made me jealous because, because, you know, I wanted to kind of, Get in that world and, and play around with them, but I was, you know, I'm just, I'm, I'm the dad on the outside. But um, they're, they're all such extraordinary people and great, great actors. It was, it was fun to get a little bit of what they were doing on set, and then to watch the show and see what they were actually doing, see their work, and in, in, in a full fledged way, that was really exciting.
1: And Katherine Langford, who's an great young Australian actress, played your daughter, who yes. was focal point of the show when you were working with her, was there any wisdom that you could give her? Cause you know, this was one of her, her first big giant roles. And.
0: Um, no, I'm like, I, I'm not, I'm not there to impart any kind of education. Or did there... you learn anything from her? Well, look, I think, I think uh, hopefully we both learned from each other in terms of like, just trying to be as, as truthful and honest as we could. I mean, I think I did learn something from Catherine. She was under a tremendous amount of uh, she had a tremendous responsibility to carry this show. And, you know, she was virtually unknown. And I I do remember a couple of conversations about about what that meant to her and how it must have felt and and the grace that she that she displayed in doing it. And Ultimately, it always comes back down to just getting the job done and doing your doing the best job that you can. You're not thinking about what it means to you in, in terms of your career and how this is going to make me, how it will position me for the next thing. Uh, it has nothing to do with that when you're in the middle of it. You're just trying to get the scene right. You're just trying to, to create a character that is honest and truthful. And, you know, any moments that we had were always so great because it was such a dramatic story. And the characters wanting so desperately to find connection and find a place of health and, and, and love that, you know, those scenes were always so beautiful and fun to do. But anyway, I, I I just, I do remember watching her thinking, wow, this is, this is such a, an interesting moment for, for this young woman. Of course, at that point you have no idea the show could be on the air and no one would watch it. So what difference does it make career wise? But we all know what happened. It was a, a successful show and she's exceptional in it. So she's on to her next phase of her career.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, in watching the show, I have three daughters who by then were in their 20s, but it did, I mean, I, and you said in your daughter was a, was a, in high school at that point. It definitely, it was a great show. It was entertaining. It was, but it made me think it did. It made me think a lot more than I had.
0: Yeah, I think that's um, a good thing. Whether it means reaching out or, or just self evaluation or awareness of others, I mean, all of these things that that the good things that I think that can come out of uh, telling these stories, I think, um, are important. And I cannot leave you without talking about Smash.
1: I mm-hmm. love it. that was that was just a brilliant show for especially if you're a Broadway lover. Yeah. So you were, you and Deborah Messing were married. Yep. And uh, it was sort of this insider baseball of musical theater. And I thought, you know, one of many reasons it was so great was because it really seemed to be a great insider look at Broadway. What did you think?
0: Yeah, (laughs) I agreed. I agreed. I, I liked, I thought the pilot was so extraordinary in how they set it up. And you really got a sense of the mechanics of auditioning or the making of the the choreography the 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 toiling over a writing of a song all of these things that i find really interesting but again inside baseball can can sometimes be boring to people who have no interest in baseball but that was the trick of the show is to kind of rise above all that and make all that granular stuff compelling on a universal level just by virtue of the people you know so that's when really well drawn characters by teresa rebeck you know enter the picture and you know, you kind of want to see how these people are, are going to succeed in their lives and in their profession. And so, you know, hopefully it rises above the, the microcosm of this world and becomes a macro thing with just life. But yeah, as a, as a guy who, who spent the better part of his life, you know, (laughs) creating theater, I loved every second of it. I was a little jealous at every, every table read because, you know, there'd be you know everyone would get up and sing their song, and I'd be in the corner saying like I could sing, kind of sing too. Maybe I could sing a song, but no. But I was happy right. well, Everybody... you sort of like the anti. Uh, like just well, I was uh, I was there to kind of establish some sense of the reality of 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 this world in the sense that not everybody's in show business, you know. Uh, so and it I was, was so funny that
1: you, who is this incredible Broadway musical star, were the outsider.
0: I love. Well, that. yeah. I mean, I've, I people have said that a lot. How, how how is it possible? And the thing I always say is like, well, I don't get jobs so that I can represent Broadway. I get jobs hopefully because I'm playing a character. I'm an actor, so it doesn't matter what I'm doing in it, you know. And it would be silly if every single person in that world, you know, could just break into song. So I, I had no problem with it. You got to have some footing in the world if people. You want people to tune in. So, yeah, it was, it was a great experience. And of course, you know, working, I I had it easy because all I had to do was make salads for Deborah Messing, you know, and every, everyone was like rehearsing and recording and, 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 you know, the choreography and you know, that it was a big, big job for a lot of people. So there was a lot of time spent making that, that show as beautiful and as exquisite as it was in its execution and its production. But I got to do the little scene work in, in, you know, in the kitchen, you know, or wherever. So it was, it was a kind of a normal job in that sense. Like what most normal television shows, or what what acting in a TV show would normally be as opposed to kind of putting up a Broadway show every
1: Broadway show and a television show. Did did you ever, did they, did the actors ever come to you and say get the musical advice or?
0: No, no. Everybody that was doing it was, was well-equipped to kind of, to do their job I mean if if I'm I'm guessing this that perhaps were some folks that hadn't had a lot of experience in front of the camera uh, I don't I don't know if that's true or not but if the if that's the case you know that's there's, there's always a big learning curve in trying to figure out how to do that and understand that and just you know just get familiar with the process which is a lot different than doing it in front of an audience in, in a live theater setting so again I'm not there as some kind of, kind of the Person who's doling out wisdom as to how to do people's jobs. Um, I'm always just happy to be there.
1: <laughs> right. I didn't mean to paint. Yeah.
0: No, no. I know. I I appreciate what you're saying. Uh, but but it's it's A wise uh, old music. Yes, guy. exactly. Ask him. He knows. He's been around he, forever. He keep
1: singing. I'll be back.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah. Why is he singing that song from Hamilton? Just I want to do. You did touch on this. Next to normal was so ahead of its time. When you joined that cast, did you realize it was ahead of its time completely?
0: Again, no, I didn't feel I didn't I couldn't see the future in that sense. All I knew is that the music was the thing for me, the key for me. I could not believe the songs that Tom Kidd had written and just the sound of it and that rock pop score that I love so much. And, you know, it's difficult to do that in a way that is theatrical and also has an element of the of the pop vernacular. So he did that, Brian, and he did that just beautifully. So that was the thing to me that made, made it so thrilling to do was getting to sing that music and hear that band and that element of, it was such a, a powerful musical experience that that was the thing that really, for me, was the backbone. And then, of course, the story is extraordinary in terms of the role that Alice Ripley played and her journey uh, of, of figuring out how to deal with uh, her mental health. So I, I don't know that I knew that it was definitely kind of breaking ground in that way. I just knew that it was, um, it was just a killer score. And it was just, it was kind of undeniable in that way, the feeling of it.
1: The last question only because I could just, you know, I would buy this experience on one of the celebrity auctions, get to get to know Brian Darcy James and his life. Yeah, so I'll have to wait till you put it on on uh, you yeah, know the celebrity charity buzz. Okay. But um, and we'll raise money for the Creative Coalition, except I'll buy it. Um, <laughs> what would you whisper to that young man sitting in the audience of
0: Dream Girls
1: to
0: hmm. whisper in his ear? Well, I think that when you're starting off, you see so many things that you want to do and some of them you you feel like you can do them by virtue of you know maybe maybe you can sing maybe you can dance maybe you can act and you can you feel confident doing that i would say to my younger self that the things that you're not certain about to get to work at figuring out if they a are things that you can do and the only way you're going to figure that out is if you do it and then b if it's things that you want to do whether that means expanding your portfolio of talents, uh, let's put it that way. Because it's easy to kind of be singular in your attempt, because it's hard enough just to kind of get your foot in the door doing the one thing that can get you an acting job. I think it takes a little bit of chutzpah and some courage to cultivate the things that you have an inkling about as opposed to the things you have a handle on. You know, if you can generate that interest for yourself and you can generate the time and the Discipline to constantly figure out what it is you can't do by doing it, trying to do it, trying and failing, that I think would serve one well. I guess what I'm saying is that there's no time like the present. Get to work. If you have a thought about doing something, do it. Don't just think about it and don't be afraid that you can't because you think that you can't. You don't know until you do. That would be a really, really long thing to whisper to myself in the middle of a Broadway show and it'd be really creepy and weird.
1: <laughs> Stop. <laughs> We're gonna have a second intermission so Brian can talk to himself. No, but I'm actually really, really listening to what you say that I have a stepdaughter who is in the performing arts, and I'm actually gonna transcribe it so that I can give her some of your advice.
0: Oh well, I hope it's helpful. I you know, I I think it's something that I believe, but um, you know. Maybe she'll get something out of it.
1: This was great. I think I got something out of it. Dear Edward is currently on Apple TV Plus right now. Everybody should be watching
0: it. It's great. I am currently binging it. Great.
1: And um, what's next
0: for you? I got all kinds of things happening. I'm in a movie called Pain Hustlers that stars Emily Blunt and Chris Evans. That's out in October on Netflix. I'm in a movie that just premiered at the Berlin Film Festival, Rebecca Miller's movie starring Anne Hathaway and Marissa Tomei. I love Rebecca Miller. She's a long-time creative
1: collision member as is Anne Hathaway. Yeah. What's the name name of that
0: film? That's called She Came to Me. That's super exciting. I'm in a show called Love and Death starring Elizabeth Olsen on HBO Max coming out in the fall. And I'm doing a, a really new exciting piece of theater called Days of Wine and Roses based on the movie written by Adam Gettle and Craig Lucas and directed by Michael Greif. And that's gonna be at the Atlantic Theater off Broadway this spring. So I've got some really cool things happening and I'm super excited to get to work on the musical and really excited about these movies that are coming out. I don't know how you had time to do this podcast. <laughs> well, as you know, <laughs> it was it was a little tricky finding the, finding the days of the, the calendar. Talk. Thanks for your flexibility and your patience. Thanks everyone for tuning into this week's episode of Hollywood at Home with the Creative Coalition featuring Brian Darcy James. For more information about the Creative Coalition, please visit our website at thecreativecoalition.org or visit our
1: social media. That's at the Creative Coalition on TikTok and Instagram and at the Creative C on Twitter.